Well, there's a story told of a uh, missionary Bible translator, and he was in Papua New Guinea, and he learned the language, and he was going to now begin to translate the Bible, the New Testament, for this uh, tribe of people. And so he got together those that knew his language and obviously knew their language and sort of had this group of translators that are going to help him. So he started with the book of Matthew. And if you're familiar with the book of Matthew, it starts with a genealogy is all of chapter one. And he said, let me just start in chapter two. We'll skip the genealogy and we'll go through. And so they completed the translation of the book of Matthew. And he said, okay, let me come back and finish off the genealogy. So we get the first book of the New Testament done. As he came back to do the genealogy, you know, in that genealogy, it says uh, Abraham begat or Abraham was the father of. And so they discussed as a translation team how they were going to translate that word begat. And they got that. And then they slowly started working through the, you know, Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and down. And they got about six names down through this translation. And uh, those who were from the tribe began to get a little bit excited and he could feel sort of energy building in the room. And, uh, and so they said to him, uh, the people who were translating, they said to the missionary, so are you telling me these are real people? And uh, the missionary said, oh yes, they're real. And then to that, the translator said, well, this is what we do. We keep these genealogy records. We keep track of, you know, our ancestors and where they came. And they looked at the missionary and they said, but we just thought you were telling us stories from your land that you had made up. So these are really real people. He said, yes, that's what I've been trying to tell you. These are real people. And then the, then the group of translators said, well, if they're real, then we believe we believe, and they went out and they gathered other people from the tribe together and they read Matthew chapter one, the genealogy. And they said to everyone, these are true stories from the Bible. What was the key to their belief? The key to their belief was seeing that these indeed were true stories, true events. Well, you may be picking up from my subtle hint today that we are also in a genealogy. Matthew has one, and Luke also has another one. It's Luke chapter 3. I can invite you to turn there, uh, turn on your Bibles, open them up. Uh, for those of you watching online, uh, welcome. So glad you're a part of the Harbor community. My name's Jeff Bennett, and I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor. Uh, you know, we uh, are in a, a time where, or let me just say, uh, talk about the series here for a minute. We're in the series called He Is Here. Luke is introducing Jesus to us, and he's giving us his credentials. He's a fulfiller of Old Testament prophecy. John the Baptist introduces him. Last week, we have the credential of an audible voice from heaven, God the Father speaking at Jesus' baptism. And today, we come to another credential point to look at the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. And before you get too discouraged that we've just got a long list of names in front of you, I was reminded this week as I was thinking about this, I see a lot of ads on TV for Ancestry.com or Ancestry.ca. Apparently, looking into your genealogy is quite popular. People enjoy that. People want to learn about uh, sort of your background and where you're from. And I think one reason people do that is because we want to know, you know, our, our family tree. It's a part of establishing who we are. What's our identity? It's a part of seeing our lives in a bigger purpose and in a bigger plan. And as we come to look at Jesus's genealogy, 
That's my hope and prayer for you today. That as we look in on this, that you'll see a little more of the big picture. The big picture of Jesus, but also the big picture of who you are. There's parts in here about as we see who Jesus is, we learn how who we are. As we see God's big picture plan and purposes, we see how we fit in to those purposes and those plans. So it's Luke chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 23. No worries. I'm not going to read this out loud. I could never try to pronounce all the names. But keep it open in front of you because I'm at different points. I'll refer back to the genealogy. And what I have is just five lessons that we learn from Jesus' family tree. Just five things that as we look in on Jesus' genealogy, three, five things that we can learn. I'll sort of explain it, show you where I get it from, and then sort of talk about how it applies to our lives. So the first is this. Here's the first thing we learn. God's word is true. God's word is true. If you look down at that list of names, you've got Adam at the bottom, you've got Seth, you've got Noah, you've got uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you've got David. Here's what Luke marks and everyone else who read it at his time. These were real people. These are real names. These are real stories. Back to the story I told at the beginning. These are true stories from the Bible. These are not myths or ideas or things that, you know, they are actual events and actual people. It's interesting. We have two genealogies in the New Testament. Matthew's genealogy is more of a traditional genealogy. Starts with the oldest person and works its way down. It goes from, uh, starts oldest at Abraham, gets down to David, and then from David to Jesus. Luke's genealogy does the same. It's got from David to Jesus and from David to Abraham. It's also got a third part. We'll talk about it in a minute. But Luke's genealogy is actually reversed. It goes in the opposite direction. And if you were to compare the two genealogies, you would find they're all, both the same between Abraham and David. But if you compare them, starting with Joseph, Jesus's father, they are different. Matthew has Jacob as Joseph's father, and Luke has someone else as Joseph's father. And if you look at that, people can look in and see, see, that's why the Bible is wrong, right? You can't even get the genealogy of Jesus right. How can, how can Joseph have two fathers? How could Jesus have two grandfathers? See, the Bible clearly must be wrong. But just think about that for a moment. There's even a hint in the way I've said it. We all have two grandfathers. We have, a father's, we have our father's father on that side, but then we also have our mother's father. We all have two grandfathers. In fact, some of you even here today might say you have two fathers. One by birth and one by adoption or one by birth and one by marriage or, or different ways that, that you may have two fathers. And so we're not sure, but here's what scholars, as they look in on these two genealogies, here's the best thing that we can suppose is happening. Mary may not have had any brothers. And if Mary had no brothers, then the tradition would be that Mary's father would adopt Joseph into their family. And you can understand that in a patriarchal culture, passing of wealth and property rights, this would be important. So what scholars believe is Mary did have no brothers, and then Joseph's, um, Joseph is adopted into that family. And so when you read Matthew's biography, he's giving us Joseph's ancestry by birth. And when you read Luke's biography, he's giving us Joseph's ancestry by adoption. But they both go back 
to David. They both arrive there at David and then are similar after that. And that is very important. Because see, years earlier when David was king, God made a promise to David. He said this, I will establish your throne. Uh, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. If you're a king and you hear that one of your descendants will always reign on the throne, that is a significant promise. And so in the people of Jesus' day, as they were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for someone to come in the line of David, along that line, who would reign on the throne and fulfill that promise. Isaiah, 700 years earlier, he said it this way, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And Isaiah is predicting that again, the Messiah would rise out of David's line. And so everyone in that day, as they are anticipating and looking for the Messiah, they're looking for someone in the line of Jesus. And we'll know later on in Luke, Jesus faces a lot of opposition. People are always trying to discredit him. And one way you could have very easily discredited Jesus is just gone down to Bethlehem, checked out the tax records, checked out the genealogy records, they would have been there, and just traced back his heritage. If he wasn't from the line of David, you just could have come out and say, hey everyone, I know the miracles and the teaching, but he's not the Messiah because he's not from the line of David. But what we read here in both biographies is that he is from the line of David. His credentials are Solid and just in God's providence, he's from Jesus is from the line of David, both on his father's side and on his mother's side through that line. There was no room for accusation against Jesus. He fulfills the prophecy perfectly. Amen. Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and exactly who was predicted from the Old Testament. Let me just say two reasons why that's important. If you're someone who maybe is a skeptic, maybe not sure about Christianity, either in attendance today or watching online, here's one thing that I would just invite you to consider. There are over a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament that predict Jesus's birth, his life, his death. There's over a hundred runs written hundreds of years before the time of Christ and Jesus perfectly fulfills them all. And so we look in on that, and if you want to examine something, that's certainly something that's worthy of examination to say, you know, what this book contains, it is true, because there are so many fulfilled prophecies. That's more the intellectual reason. What I've sort of given you thus far in this point is all sort of just good facts that help us in an intellectual way put a firm foundation to the, to the idea, to the fact that God's word is true. But let me just give you another one that's good for the soul about God's word being true. Let me just read from Psalm 19. You'll see it come up on the side screens, just three verses. Here's what the psalmist says. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Aren't those wonderful words there? As the psalmist looks in and describes the truth of the word of God. He gives six different descriptions of the word of God and then gives us the benefit of it. I love how he describes it there. You'll see it. The word of God refreshes our soul. The word of God gives joy to our heart. The word of God gives light to our eyes. 
When we're empty, we look in here and find refreshment, find joy. When we don't know where to go, we look here and find guidance. It endures forever. And then the last line, and I love how he says it, and all of these words are righteous. Not just some, not just most, but everyone is right and good. So here's the first thing we mark. The word of God is true. And that not only is good intellectually, but good for our souls. Brittany, we so appreciate your baptism. I love how she said it in her story. Here's what she said. He, God showed me how nothing in this world could ever be compared to what he has prepared for me. That no matter how much I could possess on this earth, it won't last. But he will always remain. God and his word lasts. And as we look at Jesus' genealogy, we see how true it is. And we're reminded to put our faith and trust in him and in his unchanging righteous word. So that's the first idea. God's word is true. Here's the second idea. God has provided a way for our redemption. God has provided a way for our redemption. If you look down in the genealogy, go all the way down to the bottom, it ends very uniquely. The last name on the list does not exist in a genealogy anywhere, other, anywhere else in scripture or anywhere else in Jewish tradition. Look, it's like it's, Luke is shouting for attention. Here's something unique, here's something different. Who's the last name? It's God himself, right? It says Adam was a son of God. A unique ending here. Why does Luke do this? Well, and what does it mean? Well, he says Adam is the son of God. Now, that does not mean, we know this, that it doesn't mean that God gave birth to Adam, right? We know that Adam is a created being, but he is the son of God, meaning he was born in the like, or he was created in the likeness of God, or as Genesis 1.27 says, in the image of God. Adam was created in the image of God, the likeness of God. He is the son of God in that sense. And just think about Adam for a moment. Unlike any other human being, when Adam was created, he had the perfect image of God in him. He, it was unspoiled, unpolluted, uncorrupted. No sin in him. We almost can't picture a human being that, that, that made in the image of God without sin in them. But that's what we learn that Adam was, unlike any other human being. But then we know what happened. Adam sinned. He disobeyed God. And sin marred the image of God in him, but then also in all of his descendants. So in some ways, we could say everyone else on the list is a son of God, but not in the same way. Not in the same way Adam was a son of God. He was unique. But because of his disobedience, him and everyone that follows falls into sin and misery. And that sin falls through the entire human race and just goes on and on and on. And haven't we felt a little bit of that even watching the news over the last couple of weeks? We see how the sin of Adam and the misery that he brings just keeps rolling its way out into our world. That long list of genealogy, it's a list of those who sinned. And the result came brokenness into their lives and into the world. But we see that played all the way out. And if you're feeling that yourself, 
or you're feeling that in the world, you can sort of look back to Genesis 3 and see the curse that came upon the first Adam, this son of God, because of his sin. And you can say, who will ever reverse this curse? Who will ever fix all this has gone wrong? Who will ever set right what the first son of God messed up? Who will set right the first son of God's sin? Well, Luke contains the answer for that. He's hidden it. Remember, if you were here last week at Jesus' baptism, there's an audible voice from heaven. What does the voice say? You are my son whom I love. What's Jesus, what's God saying? This is my son. Jesus is the son of God. Again, like Adam, made in the likeness and image of God. But yet Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. He perfectly bears the image of God because he is God himself. Jesus is the, the, the true son of God. But then also Jesus is the son of Adam. He's in the genealogy. Jesus is like Adam and he is tempted and troubled. Jesus suffers and is persecuted, is hated, reviled, and ultimately crucified. Jesus is both the true son of God and the son of Adam. Jesus is every bit what Adam was. He's fully man. And in every sense, he is also the son of God, fully God. Jesus is son of God and son of Adam, fully divine and fully human. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? Because it helps us answer the question of who can fix the sin of the first Adam. Who can fix the, the sin of the first son of God? Well, only the true son of God, only the second Adam, Jesus can fix. And next week, you're going to see what this true son of God, the second Adam, he does something that the first Adam did not do. But that's next week. But the genealogy, as you look through it, is a list of sinners, Terah, who had idols, Abraham who lied, Jacob a cheater and thief, Judah we really don't mention even in public for what he did, David, you can, you can read it on your own, David, murderer and adulterer and the list goes on. Who can ever fix this? Who can set it right? Only one, the true son of God. And today, if you're feeling that brokenness in you and in our world, could I just invite you to come to Jesus? the true son of God, the second Adam who sets it all right. If we just simply, as Brittany told us in her story, just simply recognize our sin, we turn from it, we put our trust in him, he makes us new, he gives us new life. Wouldn't today, if you've never done that, come to Christ and trust in him. He, this genealogy says he, he came to redeem us, to buy us back out of our brokenness come to him today. So those are our first two ideas. God's word is true, every bit of it. And then secondly, God has provided a way through our redemption, through the second Adam, the true son of God. Third idea is this, God is working out his sovereign plan. God is working out his sovereign plan. As you look down this list, it's a long list of names and it is an incomplete list. We know this from Genesis. Both Matthew and Luke skip over some generations. Their point was not to give a whole family tree. Their point was just to make the connections for us. 
I was part of a gathering this week and I was leading and we were doing this story. And so it was my idea that we would read this out loud. I said, don't worry about the pronunciation. We'll just read it out loud. And so we sort of went around each person reading a verse, messing up the pronunciation and going around. And as that was happening, as we were going around, there was eight of us there. I thought, wow, this is really taking quite a while. You know, when you're the leader, you're conscious of time. And suddenly I realized, boy, this is taking much longer than I expected. I didn't realize this was such a long list of people of names to read out loud. And even as I was doing that, I thought, this is taking me a while to read out loud. I thought, imagine if I had have lived it, how long this took. These are generations after generation of people. Think of the time that is going on in there. But yet... As you think about all the time represented, think right from day one, right from Adam, God has a plan that he will bring Jesus into the world. Think of all the things that happen along that list. Nothing stops God from accomplishing his purposes all the way along. Think of all the different events, all the different people. Some would have had very difficult lives, very troublesome. Some would have had horrible events in their world. But yet through all of that, God is working out his sovereign plan and bringing us perfectly to Christ. Look down to verse 35. His name is Eber. You see that there, E-B-E-R? He's after Noah. He's before Abraham. I don't think we know anything else about him from scripture. Just think of where he lived. You go to him right in his time and you say, Eber, God's got a plan. He's like, I don't see much. There's, a, there's Noah, and I have no idea what's coming. And if you were to say, well, Eber, just look, you know, a couple of generations, maybe more, we don't know. There's going to be this guy, Abraham, and God's going to create a whole nation. And he'd be like, well, that doesn't sound that exciting. You know, well, how many kids does Abraham have? He must have a lot. You're like, no, only one, actually. You know, maybe a second, but one, Isaac. And Eber would be like, well, that doesn't seem like much of a plan. Doesn't much of a plan. What, what happens after that? And you'd be like, oh, it gets better. He has, you know, a child, and there's Jacob, and there's 12 kids. And then they grow to be a nation of two or three million people. And Eber's like, oh, okay, that sounds okay. Well, what? Tell me about the nation. Tell me about all these people. You know, if you could just look at just right before Moses, here's what you'd say to Eber. Well, they're just all slaves in Egypt. And Eber would be like, 300 years out? That doesn't look like much of a plan either. Doesn't look like much of a plan. But here's what we know. We look back now over all of that genealogy and we say, God, you had just a magnificent plan from Abraham to Moses, to the judges, to David, to the prophets, to Jesus. Oh God, you were working out this wonderful plan that you would never see in this little 300, 500 year period that Eber existed in. So here's the good news for you today. If your life is in shambles, if you're looking at something in your life now and you think, I have no way of ever seeing God's purpose for this event, and if I look down the next 300 years, I don't think I could see any purpose. But here's the encouragement. For all who are in Christ, God is sovereignly at work. He is working out his plan. And if you are in Christ, know that he loves you and trust in him. He is working all things for your good. God is sovereignly working out your plan. 
Now, I don't know if Eber can see what's going on down here, but just for a moment, if we could, you know, get his attention and he knew that I was talking about him today, he'd probably say, hey, thanks for mentioning me. I don't get much mention, you know, in scripture. Glad to know I'm getting noted. I did make it into the Bible. But here's what Eber would say. He'd say, no worries, no worries. I see the entire sovereign plan of God now. When I was in that little spot between Noah and Abraham, I didn't see it, but now I see it all. His testimony would be to us, trust in him, trust in him. He is good, he has a plan. That's the third idea. God is working out his sovereign plan and we trust in him. Fourth idea, it's this. Jesus is for all people, all people including you and me. Matthew's genealogy, goes to Abraham because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and he wants to say to all of his Jewish readers, Jesus is the true son of Abraham, right? Don't, don't get confused or lost. Everybody, Jesus is the true son of Abraham and so we need to follow him. That was his word to a Jewish audience. Luke is writing to a different audience. He's writing to Theopolis, Greek Roman audience. And so Luke, the second reason he goes back to Adam is because he wants to establish that Jesus is not just for Jewish people, but he is for all people. Jesus is a son of Adam from all of humanity. And he wants to remind Theopolis that Jesus has come for all people to bring salvation to all and including you and me. Look at some of the other names on that list as we mark this. You'll notice I've chosen the short names. They're hopefully easier to pronounce. Verse 26, Joba, Joda. You know, he's after David. I was sort of wondering about him. We know nothing about him. Was he a leader, you know, like King David? Maybe he was more of a musician, played the, played the harp. Was he a shepherd, you know, who watched sheep? I was wondering how wealthy he was. You know, was he wealthy? Did he have a lot of resources or was he poor? Did he live a long life or a short life? We don't know any of these things about uh, Jodah. Nothing. You know, we know, only thing we probably know is he had one son. At least it's recorded there, but nothing else. Or then look down to verse 28. There's someone named Ur. Again, we know nothing about him. I was wondering, is he, was he the life of the party? Is he the guy that everyone wanted to be around? Or is he more sort of quiet and more introverted? You know, how was his health? Did he, was he strong all of his life or did he have maybe an ongoing health condition? We don't know. Is he the smartest person in his class? Did he do really well in school? Or maybe he was more hands-on. Maybe he just enjoyed those sorts of things. We have no idea about many of the people on the list. In fact, most of the people on the list of genealogy of Jesus are not big names, they're small names and we know nothing about them. But here's the thing we can remind ourselves today. God knows every one of their names. God has recorded them here in his word. God knows the name of every person on this list. And here's what's good about that, is we remind ourselves that God knows every person on this list, but then he also knows our name. God knows us as well. Just think about that. When you remember someone's name or when you forget their name, it so bothers you because remembering someone's name is a statement that I love you, that I care about you, that, that I'm interested in you. And if you're maybe, you know, single and looking to date someone, one of the first questions you ask, if you see someone you like, you say, oh, tell me their name. You know, who are they? How can I get in touch with them? And if you've been wherever you would go to work this week or wherever you do, if you've known someone two years, 
They come up and ask you this week, hey, what was your name again? Here's what you're gonna think. You really don't care that much about me. You can't even remember my name. But here's what we mark is we see all of these little names. God knows every one of them and he knows our names. There's no forgotten people. There's no insignificant people. There's no overlooked people. And I think part of the reason that we, that genealogies are popular now is we wanna to try to answer the question, who are we? Where do I fit into the story? Where do I fit into the big picture? And so we look to our past, we look to our ancestors to try to answer that question. It's actually a really common question in our culture today. Where do we look to find ourselves? Where do we look to determine who we are? And to predominantly what North American culture says is where you need to look is inside. You know, look inside and you will know who you are. But what God is reminding us here in this genealogy, as we see that he knows every name and thus Jesus is for all people, he's saying, don't look inside, look up. Look up to him. Here's how Patrick Miller so well brings this together as we think about the issue of identity. Here's what he says. This me-centered universe promises freedom. You can finally self-define, self-discover, and self-express, but it only delivers anxiety because the possibilities of selfhood are endless. Without a creator God to define me, how do I know the right me to become? See what he's saying there? You know, we live in an era that says, just look in and you'll discover yourself. Ultimately, he says that brings anxiety because we have nothing to ground us, nothing to say this is who you were created to be. And so whether we're a leader, a musician, a shepherd, the life of the party, an introvert, whether we're healthy or not, whether we're smart or more hands-on or everything else, here's what this reminds us. God created us that way. He's made us that way. Not one of us is forgotten or insignificant or overlooked. God knows our name. He knows who we are. And we ultimately say, God, help me look up to you and find my purpose and meaning in my identity in what you say about me. Nothing else gives us the grounding and the foundation that we need. So that's the fourth thing we learn in this biography or this genealogy. Jesus is for all people, including you and me. He knows our name and we find our identity in him. Here's the fifth idea. The fifth thing is this. It just simply reminds us this, the story is not finished. The story is not finished. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of people who waited for the Messiah to come, but yet the things that I have mentioned are still true today. God's word is still true. God is still providing a way for people's redemption today. God is still working out his sovereign plan and he is still inviting people to come to him and find their worth, their significance, and their identity in him. We end every service with the four words, harbor, we are sent. We're, we'll end in a moment, but let me, this is my harbor, we are sent application. God is doing all of these things today, this week. And as you go out, you can have total confidence that he is providing a way of redemption for people and he is working out his plan. And so therefore, because we see this, point people to Jesus. Share Jesus. We are sent out into this reality with a message and with a word. Here's the other thing it reminds us of. 
even as you see that long list of people who waited for the first coming of Jesus, waited for the Messiah to come. I think some of them, you know, right before Jesus, it's the 300 years of silence. We just always say that so quickly. If you lived in the 300 years of silence, you'd be like, this is a long time and it's very silent, right? Just waiting and longing for Christ to come for his first time, for the Messiah to come. We, in many ways, are waiting in the same way. He's already come once, but we recognize he will come again. And we wait patiently, but we wait with hope for him to come. Things don't always turn out the way we want them. God doesn't always work in our lifetime. But we can say with confidence, the best is yet to come. Why is that? Because Christ, again, he is our hope. He will return. He will reign on the throne of David and he will put all things right. So even as revelation ends with Jesus saying, yes, I am coming soon. And then the author says, yes, come Lord Jesus. Our hope is in you. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we see Lord your plan, the way you have worked this out. God, providing for our redemption. God, providing, Lord, for us to be found in you. And God, we remember, Lord, all the people that waited for you. And so, God, we pray, Lord, you would birth in us the same trust, the same faith, the same confidence, even as we have sung this morning, Lord, recognizing that you are good. God, even when we do not see it, oh, Lord, may we place our confidence and trust in you, Lord, knowing that the best is yet to come. And so God, help us to be rooted there, we pray. In Christ's name, amen, amen. Let me invite you to stand. I just have a scripture that I wanna read before I send us on our way. This is a verse about hope. The best is yet to come. It's from Romans 15, 13. Here's what Paul wrote. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with hope so that you will abound in hope. Harbor, we are sent.